Haggai chapter 2. Kind of a tiny little minor prophet, but has a big message, as we learned last week. Haggai, if you have trouble finding it, it's at the end of your Old Testament. Go to Matthew in the New Testament, and then go back three books. Go through Malachi, then go through Zechariah, and you'll find Haggai. And we will go through the entire chapter, second chapter of this book of Haggai together. So let's read, starting in verse 1. Haggai 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people, with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50, there were but 20. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, 
declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. God, what a powerful word you've given us this morning. Lord, I pray for our hearts to be softened by your spirit. So difficult to be changed and powerful tools for your kingdom in this sinful world, but we know, God, that you are at work among us, that you can do more than we ever dreamed. And we pray that you would do that this morning. Pray that, that I would not get in the way, that the distractions of this world would not hinder your word from making an impact on our hearts, and it would transform us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, we looked at Haggai 1 together, and we learned, I hope, that we need to build God's temple. Now, when that comes to us, we don't actually go out and build a building with stone and with wood like in the day of Haggai. What it means for us is actually we put the worship of God first. We give him glory and don't rob him of glory and give it to ourselves. We don't be about our work in this world. We be about God's work in this world. That's what Haggai 1 is all about. And that's what God has challenged us through Haggai to do. But the story of Haggai started way before that, right? It started at the exile. The exile, saddest thing happened to Israel. The people of God got kicked out of the promised land. Because of their sin and their rebellion, God brought Babylon in to take over. To wipe out the temple and wipe out the city and take the inhabitants a thousand miles away to Babylon for 70 years. And God's people lost hope. They thought that God had abandoned them until God did something powerful. In 536 BC, God sent Persia, wiped out Babylon, and set the Jews free. They allowed them to go back to the promised land to rebuild. And this wonderful group of pioneer missionaries, of church planters, it it seems, goes back to the promised land to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, and to rebuild the people of God because they were ruined by their sin. And they were the right people in the right place, and they did the right work of God. First thing they did when they got there, they made an altar to worship God and give sacrifices and sing praises. And then shortly after, they began to build the temple and lay the foundation, and they were going to work on the temple, and then that's when things got hard. Samaritans started stirring up trouble, talking to Persia, and Persia told the Israelites to stop. No more. No more temple. And the Jews obeyed. They they were listening to their governing authorities. They stopped God's work, and they turned inward. They turned to their own kingdoms, their own houses, and built them up. They were falling into idolatry without even knowing it. And then Haggai comes on the scene and he confronts the people in their sin. Remember, they had all these excuses. It's bad timing. We don't have the resources. It's hard. And Haggai goes, no, it's not. This is idolatry. You have pushed God aside. You've prioritized him. You've left him out of this. And you're worshiping yourself. Oh, and by the way, how's that worked out for you? Right? Yeah, you know the drought you've had and every, every effort that you've put in seems worthless. You're unsatisfied. You know how that happens? God did that. And that's a beautiful sign of his grace. He's trying to bring you back. Give up your idols and repent. That's what Haggai said. And the amazing thing is all the people repented. Which is so uncharacteristic for Israel, isn't it? It is, and it's uncharacteristic for us too. Haggai 1, verse 12 says this, All the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. And why did they obey? 
because the people feared the Lord. They were afraid of the kingdoms and difficulties, but when they saw God for who he is, they had a reverence, a fear for him that allowed them to turn to God and say, I don't care what happens to me, take control. And then God gives them a promise. In verse 13 of Haggai 1, the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. What a beautiful picture of God's grace. That God would stay with his rebellious, sinful people. That God would continue to be with his unfaithful bride. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace. And oh, how I wish I could say they lived happily ever after. I I so wish I could say it was smooth sailing for the people of God from here on out. We know better, don't we? See, we know that when you repent, when you turn your life over to God, that's the beginning, not the end, right? We know that even though giving your life to God can be the most life-giving, fulfilling, hopeful thing you can do, it's hard, isn't it? It's a battle. And for anybody that's been a Christian for any length of time, you've realized that once you join the family of God, you don't just join the family, you join an army, Once you become part of the kingdom, you become part of a battle. And we battle sin, rebellion, even within our own heart. And we struggle between pride and between despair. And we often wonder, is God with me? We battle, don't we? In fact, I wonder how your battle went this week. I asked you last week, whose temple are you building? Are you building your life, focusing every effort you can on God's temple and his work and his kingdom in this world, making his glory clear to all? Or are you focusing on yourself and all the things that that bring you delight apart from God and worshiping yourself? Whose temple did you build this week? Well, if you're like me, that's a tough question to answer. Because you know what, last week I was pumped up, I was so excited, I was convicted and challenged by the word of God. I was like, I'm repenting, I'm turning to God, I'm going to do amazing things this week. I went home, I served my family, I loved them, I I helped out around the house, I did all kinds of things. Maybe some of you even got your calendars out and like, I'm going to use my money this way and my time this way, I'm going to build God's temple this week. Then Monday morning comes. And Tuesday comes. It's a battle. It's difficult. But I see a lot of successes. But even though it's, there's some sex successes that I actually think, well, you know what? This temple building is not that bad. I'm doing pretty good. And I can actually get kind of prideful about it. And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday come along. And I'm like, oh, man, there's a lot more battles than I thought. Right? People are just getting in my way. If God would get these people out of here, I can build this temple. Right? <laughs> Uh, everything's frustrating me, and I'm just saying, God, get me to your, the weekend. Get me to Saturday, my day off, then I'll build your temple. And we get to Saturday, and what happens? Chores, housework, all the stuff we didn't do during the week. Get to the end of Saturday and go, what happened to Saturday? And now we're here Sunday morning again, and we wonder, whose temple did I even build this week? I look back on my week, and yeah, there were successes, but when I succeeded, I actually became prideful about it. But then when I I had failures, I see those most clearly, and I begin to despair, and I wonder, God, are you in this? I tried. I gave forth my best effort, and it was hard. It didn't work out like I planned. 
And so what I could do is I could be this motivational speaker this morning. I could, as long as I had better hair and whiter teeth, I could pump some sunshine for you, right? I could tell you, you know what? You have unlimited potential. You just need more self-esteem. You need to realize what's inside of yourself, and I'm going to bring that out. Here, I'll help you get organized. I'll, I'll help you plan your week. I'll help you deal with these troubling people in your life. In fact, I'll even teach you breathing techniques to manage your stress. We could do that, right? Teach you to look inward for hope. But then you'd be back probably in a few hours saying, what do I do next? It's no wonder the self-help industry is a $12 billion a year industry in our country. Because it teaches you to look inward. Well, I'm not going to teach you to look inward this morning. I am going to motivate you by turning you to the great motivational speaker, God. It sounds weird to call him a motivational speaker, but he actually is. That's not all he is. But he motivates his people to do amazing things because he motivates and fills them. But there's one huge difference between God and the rest of the world. He does not motivate you by telling you to look inward. God motivates you by telling you to look outward. Look at him and his glory and his majesty and the very fact that this amazing God wants to be with you. That's where you find hope. That's where you find joy to build his kingdom. It's like Robert Murray McShane says, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. We need to look outward, out of our circumstances and to the Holy One of God this morning. That's how we build God's temple. And that's what Haggai 2 is talking about. In fact, I want to give you the message of Haggai 2 in a sentence if I can. Here's what he wants us to do. He doesn't want to let us off the hook. We need to build God's temple to be about God's work in this world and not our own kingdom. And we don't need to despair. We don't need to throw in the towel or give up. But we also don't need to go to pride and think that we're all that or that we can figure this thing out on our own. And the reason we don't need to go to despair or to pride is because God is good and God is great. And he's building more than you can possibly imagine. That's the hope of Haggai too. In the difficulties of building his kingdom, God is good and he is great and he is building more than you can possibly imagine. But what do I even mean by good and great? They're simple words, but we fly by them. We don't even think about what they mean. Well, by good, I don't mean that God is just not bad. He's not. But I mean that everything that God is and everything that God does is worthy of approval. That when God acts, everybody should give him a standing ovation. That when you see God and you see what he does, you will never wish, ah, I just wish he would have done things a little differently. You will never be disappointed with God, ever, because he's good. And his goodness is shown most clearly to us in the way he cares for us, in the way he supports us and is with us and meets our needs. That's where we see his goodness and the way he deals with us on a daily basis. But he's also great. His goodness is when he's with us. His greatness is his bigness, his majesty, his sovereignty, his power, and the fact that he alone is the creator and the sustainer of life. That's the greatness of God. And the best news in the world is that God is not just good or great. He's good and great. Oh, if God was just good, that would be so sad. If he cared about my needs and he, he wanted to help me, but he just didn't have the ability, how disappointing would that be? 
It's like my son, he comes and says, hey, dad, can I help with the yard work or carrying that for you? And I'm just like, your heart's in the right place, son, but no, right? You can't, you can't lift this. You can't do this. But God's not like that, is he? He's also not just great. He's not just huge and powerful and absent. Like the deistic God, he doesn't just, he's not just out there and unattainable. No, he is good and great, He cares and he can help. And he's building more than we possibly can know. Let's see what that looks like in Haggai chapter 2. This is God's help to the people in despair. Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, let me stop there because Haggai is really good at dating everything. This is now October 17th, 520 B.C., So that means that this is two months after that last sermon, after the people repented. They actually began to gather supplies, and then they've been working on the temple now for about four weeks. Things have begun. Things have started, but they're hard. I mean, think about it. The temple sat in ruin for 15 years. The first thing they had to do was just clear it off. And they didn't have power tools, (laughs) Sounds obvious, but they didn't have the buzz saw out there and all the things that we have. So this is slow, hard, tiring work. And they had to work through the holidays. We don't like that, right? But they had to do this work in the midst of their their heavy feast season. They had the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and so many Sabbaths. In fact, when Haggai speaks here, they're in the midst of a feast, the Feast of the Tabernacles. This is a beautiful feast. This feast actually commemorates two things. One is the grape harvest. They harvest the grapes, they drink some wine, they they hang out and enjoy each other's fellowship and thank God for providing. But if you remember, God had not given them rain in a while. And they hadn't had a crop. So not only was the work slow, it was disappointing, and they didn't have anything to celebrate. Also, the other part of this feast was that people would come from out of town and they would basically go camping for a week. They would take tents, they would go out into the wilderness and they would camp out of their house to remember the time in the wilderness that their people experienced. And they would remember God's faithfulness in providing for them even in the midst of a horrible place. But they seem like they don't have any provision. They seem like it's just more and more difficult. Even though they've repented, they've turned to God. And look at this next part of verse 1. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Can we just stop there and celebrate God's goodness? I mean, God is so good to his people. It was enough to tell them that he was with them. To care for them and give them grace. But now God stays with them. He's not the type of God that says, here's some directions, I'll see you at the finish line. No, he remains with his people. He runs the race with them. He is so good. And look what he says. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Here's what Haggai's doing. He's calling all those people all the people that were living in Jerusalem and all those people from out of town saying, all right, who saw the first temple? And that was 60, 70 years ago, so there's probably not a lot of these guys left. 
So the people that saw the temple, they get them thinking about the temple. And Haggai says, you remember how beautiful it was? Do you remember all the gold and how all the nations envied us because our temple was so awesome and God was so glorious? Do you remember that beautiful temple? Well, how does the new one compare? They look and think about the temple and they look at this slab before them. And they start to despair. The old people And sure, the young people heard stories as well. Think about the temple and look what the work had brought them. And they begin to think, this is nothing. This is a shack, right? It's not that the temple was so small. It was actually pretty close to the same size. But they didn't have any of the gold, the resources. They didn't have the ark or any of the sacred things to put in it. Plus, they may not have even had the time or the the resources to complete it. And they're thinking, this is a lost cause. This is worthless. Why even spend money on this? This is a lousy investment. You know, it would be better to just leave it like that because we've gone along 70 years in Babylon without it and we just, let's just keep doing that. Better to have good memories than this horrible reminder of our frailty. Right? That's what they're thinking. That's what they're thinking. And you know what? This wasn't the first time they thought that. We read this part of Ezra. This is in Ezra 3. This is the first time they laid the foundation before they let it sit for 15 years. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's house, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of people weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The young people are pumped up. They're saying, can you believe what God is doing? And the old people are crying, going, we had it so good. Look what our sin has brought. The devastation, the wreck that this has brought. And they despaired. I wonder if they're despairing people here this morning. I wonder if you have battled sin, you've tried to build God's kingdom and it feels like a lost cause. I wonder if you're wondering at this moment that is it even worth it? Is God's kingdom worth it? My best efforts seem to come to nothing. I pour my life into my job and my kids and my my marriage, but it's still hard. I'm pushing through a marriage that I think is gonna end in divorce and it's difficult. These kids don't listen. My boss is still a jerk. I don't have the job that I wanted, the time that I wanted. My studies are hard. Is this really worth it? It doesn't seem like God is with me. Maybe you wonder, like John Piper says, who wants to devote his life to a second-rate temple? Is God really here? Is he really at work? Oh, if that's you this morning, I want you to know that you're in the right place. It saddens me that in our culture, the church is the place where you come when you've got it all figured out. When you're right with God, that's when you go to church. No, the church is a place for the broken. It's a hospital to lay our sins bare and let the gospel heal us. And if you're broken this morning, you're in the right place. And you need the same encouragement that the people of God needed back then. And that's that God is good. Look at the next verse, verse four. For thus says the Lord of hosts, excuse me, that's verse six, verse four. 
Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the, wor- the, the Lord, and work. Work. Be strong. Why? Because you have unlimited potential. Because you just need more time. That's all it takes. No, he doesn't say that, does he? Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. God is with you. Can you even fathom what that means for these people who are struggling to see the glory of God in everyday life in this hard work to know that God is with them even when they don't see it? No doubt they were remembering the words that David gave to Solomon when he was building the temple. In 1 Chronicles, David tells Solomon this, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. God's in this. He's fighting the battle with us. And look what that looks like. Look at the next part of verse 4. I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse 5 now. According to the covenant I made with you when you, were, when you came out of Egypt. God says, you remember that promise I made to Moses? You know that you're camping this week? You're out in these fields in a tent. You know why you're out there? Because you're trying to remember the people of God in the exile. Or the exodus, excuse me. You're remembering when God provided for his people when they had nothing. Do you remember that covenant? Well, I'm still remembering it. I'm still faithful to fulfill the blessing of the Mosaic covenant in your life. I drop food from the sky for them. Do you think that I'll be with you now? That's what God is saying. I'm faithful to my covenant. And look at the rest of verse 5. My spirit remains among, in your midst. Oh, I know you don't see the cloud and the pillar of fire and the glory above the temple right now, but I'm there. And guess what? I'm sticking around. I'm not going to leave. I'm good and I care. But that's not enough. So what? God's good makes no difference in the world if he's not great. If he can't do anything about it. Go back to verse 4. End of verse 4. For I am with you, declares who? The Lord of hosts. This is Haggai's favorite way to talk about God. And what it means is that it's the God, Yahweh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? The the God of the covenants and the fathers. That God is the God of armies, of heavenly armies. This is the sovereign, majestic Lord. This is the almighty creator. That God is for you. That God is with you. That's what he says. Look at the next part here. Verse 5, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made when you came out of Egypt. Saying, do you remember Egypt? Do you remember how I freed the people of God from the most powerful nation in the world? I made Pharaoh look like a fool. Right? I'm that God, the God who topples kingdoms, the powerful and holy God. And guess what? I'm with you. I mean, you know, it's one thing when your, your mom's in the stands cheering you on. When your friends are, are in your corner and got your back. 
But what about God Almighty in your corner cheering you on, got your back? What more could we ask than the holy, perfect, good God being with us? What more could we ask? You know, I often feel like we forget what this even means in the church. You know, Romans 8 is so clear. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Guys, do you realize that means that everything that God is and everything that God does is working not just around you, but for you? Everything that's true of God is not just true, it's true on your behalf. And that means the power of God, the majestic holy power that created the world, is now guiding your life is now orchestrating things so that he receives the most glory and it's all for your good. God is great and God is good and he's holy. We can't forget holy, right? He's righteous and holy and he's jealous for your love. He cares too much about you to let you stray. He's gonna work in your life like nobody else can to make sure that you don't fall into idolatries ultimately. That he will turn you away and turn you back to himself through discipline. And he promises that you'll make it home safe and sound looking just like Jesus. He's holy and he cares. But even his wrath and his justice is for you. Oh, these things in the church we're trying to toss out. Right? What does it mean to you to think that every word and deed done against you, God is the righteous and holy judge over Everything that has offended you, every hurt that's been brought in your life, God says, I saw it. I'm going to take care of it. God is holy and just. And he's also loving and merciful and gracious. And he's infinite. We can't forget infinity because if he's just loving, he'll run out. He's like us. I loved you in the beginning, but I'm starting to wear out here, right? No, God is infinite in his love and his grace and his mercy, And he's wise. He knows exactly when to do the right thing. He doesn't do it too early or too late. He applies exactly what we need at the right time. God is with us. He is good and he is great. And what else could we ask for? I mean, really, guys, if this doesn't get you fired up to build God's house, I don't know what will. I really don't. Because God has nothing better to give than himself. He is it. He's the greatest thing in this world. And he promises us to be with us and to work for us. So the next time you encourage somebody, don't say, you're skinny enough. Don't say, you're pretty enough or capable enough or smart enough. You'll figure it out. No, tell them that God is with them. The Almighty is for them. Tell them to look outward at our creator and our sustainer. That's where we find hope, isn't it? I do need to stop here and point out the fact that, you know what? This is a promise for the people of God. If you are not in Christ, if you are continuing in your idolatry, and you've not repented and turned your life over to God, you have no reason to hope. In fact, Romans 8 says, All things work for the good for those who love God. You should not have hope. You should not be encouraged. You should be warned that the end of that path is hell and you need to repent. You need to turn to God and lay your life before him and trust in his finished work in Christ on your behalf. And if you do, then you see the goodness and the greatness of God. 
then God will be with you and for you. We could end the sermon here and just go home and meditate that for the rest of our life. But God's not done. He actually says, you know what? I'm good and I'm great, but guess what? I'm still going to be that way. And let me give you a hint of what I have planned. Look at this next verse, six. Thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give you peace. You see, God says, you see that temple that looks worthless right now? You know how you poured your life into that and it seems like nothing? Guess what? I'm going to make that more beautiful than you can even imagine. I'm going to take your little efforts to build my temple and I'm going to make it glorious. And the same applies for us today. And you know what? Just like most prophecy, this has a couple different fulfillments. We get a little taste along the way and it's still not even done being fulfilled. I mean, what happened is if we come to the time that Jesus came around, by that time, this little temple that Zerubbabel started, it was big. And the reason it was big is because Herod wanted to impress the Jews and he expanded the temple. He lined it with gold and he made it beautiful. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, even his disciples are like, can you believe this? Isn't this awesome? Right? He made it glorious and powerful. Just this little measly temple, God turned into that through him. Even the wealth of pagans was brought in to do that. Right? And it was in that temple that the Son of Man walked in as a little boy when his parents were looking for him. It was in that temple where Jesus was tried Sentenced to death on a cross where Jesus would make peace for all of us. But it was also that temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. Does that mean Haggai's prophecy didn't come true? Does that mean that this was all worthless? That all that work amounted to nothing? No, God had much bigger plans, didn't he? Listen to John 2. This is what Jesus said on the steps of the temple. Destroy this temple... And in three days I will raise it up. But he was not speaking about, or he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is saying the temple is the place where God meets with his people. But this is a shadow. This is pointing to me. I am the place where God meets with his people. I am the one that's tabernacled among you. I am now where you come to see the glory of God. Right? As it says in Colossians 1. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus was filled with the glory of God in a way that that temple never was. And it was through Jesus that we have peace, right? That Jesus would gather people from all the nations. All the nations would come in and worship God because of Christ, And what's amazing is that when Jesus ascends, the the apostles and us, we build the church as the temple of God. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are filled with the glory of God. 
You are God's method for making peace among the nations. Through the church, God brings about this wonderful thing. And he's not done yet. Listen to Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the city. This is John's vision for the end. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. But its light will walk, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. God took their measly little temple, built it up, but even that little temple was a sign of God's glory. God was doing so much more than they ever thought. Even now, through us, God is doing so much more through our daily efforts than we ever thought, than we ever can even imagine. Oh, I know that you, you plug away in a difficult job, in a difficult marriage, or you, you invest your life into kids that sometimes you don't see fruit. But God is building more than you know. And this is one of the reasons I love teaching I'm a youth pastor, but I'm also a teacher at Bakersfield Christian. And I, I love teaching high school students and junior high students because you can feel like you're just pumping them full of the kingdom. Like you're just doing whatever you can to get God's word into their lives. And it can feel like a wall at times. It can. It can feel like your efforts are not getting through. But I've taught long enough that some of them are coming back. And they're telling me, you know what? That made a difference. God used you. To grow me. And you know what's even funnier is that they come back and say, do you remember that time when you said this? I'm like, no. <laughs> I, I had all these plans and how I was going to glorify God by teaching them. And when it happened the most was when I didn't expect it. When I had a casual word or I got to speak truth at a moment of need. God used those little efforts to build his kingdom. And oh, even though you may not see it right now, God is at work. Don't despair. He is good and he is great. But that's not all we need to remember. Because we not, all, not only go to despair, sometimes we go to pride, don't we? Listen to how God deals with their pride. Verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Now we're at a whole different time here. This is now December 18th. We're talking two months down the road. The people, they were encouraged. They continued to build the temple. It was hard and it was a lot of work, but God's going to do something totally different now. Look what happens in verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. And this was common practice. They would call the priests up, they would interpret the law, and they would apply it to the people. They would give a ruling. It was almost like a trial. But little did they know, the people that were on trial were the people of God. And they called up even a judgment over them. Look at verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Now what he's describing, the, the people of God would be familiar with. When the priests would make a sacrifice, they would cut up the offering that was supposed to be sacrificed. They even had folds in their garments so that they could carry it to the altar and it wouldn't touch anything because it had to be holy, right? 
So he would do this and carry to the altar, and on the way, he's saying, what if that holiness touched something? Would that make that holy? The priests are like, no, that's only holy, right? Look at the next verse, verse 13. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. What Haggai's getting at here is that, look, holiness can't be transferred. You don't just get holiness by touching something holy, right? On the other hand, defilement and sin seems like it can be transferred. This is the same in our world, right? I mean, think about it. If I had two T-shirts, one was covered in mud, one was white, if I rubbed them together, do I get two clean shirts? No, right? It, It makes the clean thing dirty. When you have a cold, you don't get better by hanging out with healthy people, right? You get them sick, right? Even we do this with our kids. I don't know if you've ever wondered like, oh, I want them to hang out with this person because they'll rub off on them, right? Thinking that maybe salvation will come through their friends. That can't happen. Holiness only comes from that which is holy. And the only holy being in the universe is God. That's what God's teaching them. And these people were thinking that holiness came from somewhere else. Look at verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people, within this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. You see, the people who were despairing two months earlier are now building the temple and thinking, This is looking pretty good. This is, this is getting better. You know what? I bet because I'm working on this holy temple, God is pleased with me. My works must be bringing holiness in myself. I'm building up righteousness for myself because I'm doing God's work, right? And they even start to think that God owes them. They're like, hey, I'm doing all this work. God, where's the blessing? Where's the rain? Where's all the things that you promised? I'm doing the work. Now pay up. That's what they thought. They thought that their work brought righteousness. Look what God says, verse 15. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came by a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hell. Yet you did not turn from me, declares the Lord. God says, you remember when you were prideful before, how'd that turn out? Do you remember when you were good enough before, before you repented, that went like a wreck, didn't it? You're going back to that. You're returning to yourself. You're focused on yourself and you've forgotten me. You've forgotten my my temple is more about than just the bricks and the stone and the wood. It's about worship and my glory. You're forgetting that. You're losing sight of that. And they go from despair to pride in such a short time and so do we. Don't we? I see this so clearly in my, my roles as a husband and as a father. I can feel so inadequate to, to equip my kids and my wife to worship God in the way I treat them and love them and care for their needs. And I could just say, God, I can't do this. But then when God acts and actually does something glorious through me, I start to go, I'm a pretty good husband. Oh, good dad. You know, people should look at me and learn from me. We go from despair to pride so quickly, don't we? And we forget that God is great. 
See, the people forgot the greatness and the majesty and the holiness of God. They forgot what Isaiah says in Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. You think that that temple is necessary for me? I can make a temple like that. I don't need that temple to be glorified because I am great. I am good. I've created all these things. No, the temple is about worship. It's about you being my people and recognizing my greatness. Right? Like Sinclair Ferguson says, the building is secondary. The glory of God is primary. They forgot. They forgot their place. And God shows them and breaks them with his greatness. And I love this. The despairing get the goodness of God, and then they get the greatness at the end. The people that are prideful are broken with the greatness, and then God heals them with their goodness. With his goodness, excuse me. That's what he does. Look at this next verse, verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day the foundation of the temple was laid, consider... Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. God says, I know you've planted. I know you've had drought. Guess what? I'm going to be good to you. Look at the next part of the verse. But from this day on, I will bless you. God says, know that I'm great and that I'm holy. And you cannot be holy by yourself, even if you're doing my work. But even though you're sinful, I'm going to be good to you. I'm good and I am great. And guess what? I have much bigger plans than you can even imagine. And look at this next verse. I love this because the people are despairing even again. They're thinking, okay, holiness doesn't come from the temple. Where do we get holiness? How can God continue to be gracious to this sinful people? And look at what Haggai says, verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Stop there for a minute. Notice, this is on the same day as the last sermon. Spoke in the morning, he goes to Zerubbabel to preach in the evening. It's almost as if God said, he ended the sermon with, I'm going to bless you. And he's like, I can't contain myself. I have to tell somebody how I'm going to bless them. <laughs> right? I have, to, I have to tell the people my plans because it's glorious. And look what he tells Zerubbabel. Verse 21. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the, the kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down. Everyone by the sword of his brother. This is apocalyptic language of God fighting the battle of God waging war and toppling nations. In Hebrews, it talks about how every kingdom of this world is going to be shaken except the kingdom of God. God's sovereign plan will bring about his glory in the end. And what does that look like? Verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. You know what a signet ring is? It's what, what kings had 
in this time. They would wear it on their finger or around their neck. It was a symbol of authority and power. And when they wanted to make a decree, they would put it in wax and stamp it to show that they're behind this. They're sovereignly bringing this about. And God turns to Zerubbabel and says, you're my symbol of power and authority in this world. I'm going to give that to you. This may not seem like much to us. This was everything to Zerubbabel. Because remember last week, Zerubbabel was supposed to be in the line of David, the line of the great king. But it hadn't gone so well. Before exile, his, great, his grandpa was horrible. He was king. Jehoiakim was a horrible king. He was into idolatry and a mess. And it was probably partly his fault that they had an exile to begin with. And God tells his grandfather this. As I live, declares the Lord, Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, if you were the signet ring on my right hand, I would tear you off. And Zerubbabel is back in the land. He's supposed to be king and he's the governor under a pagan nation. And God says, Zerubbabel, I haven't forgotten my promise. I know there were bumps along the way, but you're going to be my signet ring again. You're going to be my authority in this world. And you know what that points to way more than Zerubbabel ever thought? If you turn just a couple pages over in the Gospel of Matthew, the genealogy starts with David, ends with Jesus. You know who's in there? Zerubbabel. God says, I know you're prideful. You're building my temple, and you actually think you can provide holiness for yourself. Well, guess what? You're not holy, but I am going to give you holiness. And I'm going to do that through my king, my eternal king that I've planned this entire course of history to get to. I am going to bring about this king who is the temple. He's the symbol of God's goodness, and he's the king. He's the symbol of God's greatness. And I'm going to show his glory to the people of the world, and everybody will be amazed. And it will be in him that I will bring peace and goodness and justice that I planned from eternity past. And it will never end. This king will come and we will worship him like we're doing this Sunday morning, seeking to build God's temple to give him glory and we rejoice in the king, the holy one, the one who is good, the one who is great. And even if we're not here, we're out there building God's temple, we can't ever forget that God is good and that God is great and he's building more than we can possibly imagine. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to remember your goodness and your greatness and to taste that through your scriptures and through your people and the church as we get to be united together as one temple offering sacrifices to give, to give you glory and praise. You've provided all the righteousness and holiness we ever need in Christ so that we don't have to despair and we don't have to be prideful. So God, help us remember we're forgetful people. And I pray as we do your work, we would never forget your goodness and your greatness. Amen.